Well, I do want to welcome everybody here on Father's Day, and it's great that you're able to be here and also watching online as well. You know, I love that little, uh, if, if you missed it, that little video about fathers. I never knew that everybody looked at us as telling bad jokes, corny jokes. I, I think they're funny, you know? <laughs> of course, you know what a, you call a group of baby soldiers, right? Infantry. And, and... <laughs> Thank you for that laugh. Somebody get a microphone over here. Um, no, but, um, you know, it, you just have to have a good sense of humor, right? <clears throat> or a sense of humor of some type. But um, this morning, instead of preaching on Father's Day, and sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, I want to continue our series in 1 Peter chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be looking at the blessed hope, the second coming of Christ. I was talking to a pastor uh, just yesterday, in fact, and he said that he's going through the book of Matthew, and he, he's just laughing. He said the passage that we fell on during Father's Day is the passage where Jesus said, unless you hate your father and your mother, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. So I'm just glad I'm, being able, I'm able to preach out of 1 Peter 4 and the, on the second coming of Christ. I want to read something to you um, that is a, a really just telling the story of Alexander Solzhenitsyn in a prison in the Soviet Union. And I tell you this story because I think that we miss we miss something about the second coming of Christ and why we're even supposed to look forward to it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is a, was a prisoner in a Soviet concentration camp. He wrote a best-selling book about his experiences in that prison camp, and he was there mainly for political reasons. For years, all he had to do was look forward to, uh, to camp, especially um, look forward to, to were days of backbreaking labor and slow starvation from sunup to sundown seven days a week he worked out in those hot fields one day he literally gave up living he felt no purpose in continuing to fight he felt as if his life made no ultimate difference to anyone laying his shovel down he walked over to the bench and sat down now he knew the penalty for sitting down was death he knew that at any moment a guard would order him to get up and when he failed to respond, the guard would probably take his shovel and beat him to death, just as he has seen so many times before. As he was sitting there waiting for the death, for his death, that he knew was imminent, his head down, he felt a presence of someone over him. He thought it was a guard. Slowly he lifted up his eyes to see standing over him an old man with a wrinkled, utterly expressionless face. This man had been in the prison for many years, much longer than Solzhenitsyn. He was hunched over from the back-breaking labor and work he was forced to do. They had never communicated one word because they were not allowed to talk. The old man took a stick, and at the sand underneath Solzhenitsyn's feet, he traced out the sign of the cross. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, as he stared at that sign, his entire perspective shifted. He knew that even though he was only one man against the, the all-powerful Soviet empire. In that moment, he also knew that the hope of all mankind was represented by that simple cross. He knew that the cross represented the greatest power in all the universe. He slowly got up, picked up his shovel, went back to work. From that moment on, he said, under the sign of the cross. Now, we think about this persecution that went on 
in the Soviet Union, still goes on today, still goes on in so many different places in the world. And we think about the persecution that the people, people in Peter's day were, were going through, and we realize something. Think about just for a moment salvation. The first time that Jesus came to this earth, he came in order to save us. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day, conquering death for us, conquering sin for us. But another name for salvation is rescue. He came to rescue us, the Bible says. Well, in the second coming, when he comes again, he's coming to rescue us. And that's the way the people in the New Testament looked at it. They, oh, I'm rescued from the sinful habits. I'm rescued from the addictions. I'm, res uh, I'm wrestle, uh, rescued from all the uh, undisciplined life and the discouragements of life and the separations of life. I'm rescued. That's the point of salvation. But now they're under heavy, heavy persecution. Now they're under the trials. Now they're under the, uh, the, the reign of terror of this emperor Nero of Rome. And now they're waiting for the second coming of Christ, that blessed hope, to come to rescue them. Paul put it this way, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the Lord, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we live in America today, and I'm not saying there's not some, a little bit of persecution going on, but really, in the 20th century and the 21st century, <clears throat> we see more um, persecution going on because of the Christian faith than any other time in history. In fact, there have been more martyrs, I think, in the last 50 years than were in the previous uh, several hundred years. And so we're looking at this, and we realize maybe we can't appreciate what they're going through in America because, I mean, in the Bible, because in America, we seem to have this attitude of, wow, you know, if Jesus were to come back, I wouldn't look at it maybe as a rescue. I, I think I would look at it more as an interruption. You know, I'm living my life, I'm doing my thing, and I'm trying to live even the Christian life, perhaps. But for him to come back right now, hey, you know, somebody says, I've never been married. I'd like to get married. I'd like to have kids. You know, I'd like to, to, uh, to make a good living. I'd like to be a success in life. I've got pleasures going on in life. So I'm eating some good stuff going on in life. Then there's my kids and there's my grandkids. It's an interruption to life rather than a rescue. So I want us to look at this passage as Jesus Christ is coming back and he's coming back to save us to rescue us. And as we look at this passage, we find that even in this country, we've been going through in the last 12 months, look what we have experienced in the last 12 months in this country, an impeachment of a president, pandemic, an economic shutdown, and, a great, and the greatest civil rights or, or civil unrest in my lifetime. Now, I've experienced all these things, all four of these things and more in my lifetime, and so many of you. But now they're coming to fruition all at the same time, and people are asking the questions, does this have anything to do with the second coming? Well, of course it does. Anytime we have things going on, whether positive or negative, God has a plan for it, and it's working into God's ultimate plan for mankind. And so we want to look at a couple of things this morning. We want to look at three questions we need to answer. One, is Jesus Christ really coming back? After all, it's been 2,000 years. Secondly, when is Jesus coming back again? Can we even... Can we even know that? And then thirdly, how should we then live, which is the brunt of the passage? It's really what the passage is, is mostly about. And so as Peter's writing this letter, in chapter 4, he comes to the point of saying in verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's pointing there to the second coming of Christ. Now he's coming back to it. 
and he's saying this. He says, the end of all things is at hand. And so he's talking here, the end means a fruition of something, a fulfillment of something. And when he says all things, he's talking about the world. He's talking about everything. He's talking uh, in, in this phraseology, in the New Testament, he's speaking of the second coming of Christ. And Peter was one to really write about the second coming. He was always asking questions when Jesus was there. Um, the Bible tells us that in 2 Peter, really, the second book, the second installment, you might say, of Peter's writings were all about the second coming of Christ. Now he just gives us three or four verses. And so what are they talking about? I want us to see in verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore. Peter's really interested in the therefore, the practical application. Anytime you see the word therefore, you can bet there's a practical application to the doctrinal teaching that has already taken place in the previous verses. And we see that here. Well, first of all, let's ask the question, is Jesus Christ coming back again? And the premise is this. If you believe the Bible, you must believe in the second coming of Christ. There's no option here. If you believe the Bible, you are confident of Christ's return. Again, the word end is fulfillment. Now he's talking about all things that are at hand. What does he mean by that? He's saying it could happen any time. All things, he says in verse, um, the end of all things is at hand. That means it could be immediate. In fact, in the original Greek, as we look at, at the New Testament, it really does mean it's here. But as far as Peter was concerned, it was, it was there. He was expecting Jesus to come back in his lifetime, as many have all down through the centuries. So we theologically call this imminent, the imminent return of Christ. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean that Jesus Christ could come back at any time as far as God's concerned. Jesus Christ knows the day and the hour. God knows it as he's sitting on his throne in heaven. We just don't know it. We don't know when he's going to return. And it's good that way because we are, we are held accountable. He just says in verse 5, we're going to be held accountable. For obviously if we don't know, if we're working and we don't know when the boss is coming back, we're going to work probably more diligently. In fact, if you have a job that you don't like, you can't wait till 5 o'clock gets there so you can punch out the clock and go. You're going to work harder when the boss is watching than when he's not. So when is he coming back? Sort of like uh, you're there, it's Father's Day, so I'll tell the Father's Day <clears throat> story. You're there on the playground with your three kids. And by the way, a good game to play with your kids is, is trying to find them after you've looked at your cell phone for three hours straight. But anyway, you're there on the playground, and, and mom goes off into the store. And the kids come after a few minutes and say, Daddy, let's go get an ice cream. Well, we can't go get an ice cream now because your mom is coming back. At any, she went to the store, the dress, dress shop, outfit shop across the street, and she's going to be back at any time. We don't know when she's going to back. She's going to come back just any minute. Well, you wait 30 minutes, no mom. Dad, can we go get an ice cream now? Well, no, your mom's going to come back any minute now. Well, two hours later passes, and can we go get an ice cream now? Well, you know, your mom's going to come back at any time. Finally, she does come back. And the kids look at you and say, well, it's too late to go get an ice cream now. Or, you know, we're, I don't know if we're going to make it or not. Dad, you've been lying to us all this time. No, he wasn't lying. He didn't know when mom was coming back, but he was expecting her at any time. 
And there's the story of the scripture. And God wants us to be held accountable. In fact, 23 out of 27 books in the New Testament speak about the second coming of Christ. Acts 1.11, when Jesus was caught up in the air, what we call the ascension, up into heaven after the resurrection, he said, the angel of the Lord said this, men of Galilee, talking to the disciples, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Paul, different writer of the New Testament, says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, the shout and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Amen? To that one. John 14, 3, the apostle John. A different writer. And if I go, Jesus said this, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. All through the Bible, 23 out of 27 books of the New Testament talk about, listen, if you believe the Bible, you must believe in the return of Christ. Now, I know a lot of people don't believe the Bible. And we have scoffers. In the last days, the Bible says there's going to be scoffers. Peter, in his other installment, 2 Peter, said this, knowing this, First of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. That makes sense. Scoffers are to scoff. That's what they do. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of the coming? And yet we know that no matter how long we have to wait, if we believe the Bible, we have to believe in his return. Now, why is he coming back? Well, I don't have an exhaustive list. See, I'm not on the planning committee. They didn't ask me to do that. And they didn't ask me to even be on the purpose committee, more like the practicing committee. But in the purpose and five things listed in the Bible that we can find in the Bible, he's coming back to receive his church. This is the church age. In, in the Old Testament, you will find two comings of the Lord, but the prophets had a hard time looking for that. For example, they, if there's, there's hills, and I know we don't know much about this in Florida, you understand, you know, we're, we're kind of confused on that in Florida. We, there's hills. There's some places in the country there are hills, but there, anytime you have a hill, you have a valley, right? All right, so you think about it. The Old Testament prophets were looking, and they were seeing a hill, and that was the first coming of Christ. Then behind that was another hill called the second coming of Christ, we'll call it. But in the meantime, in, the, in, be, in between was a valley that was the church age. They often didn't see that. Some did, some obviously did not. They were looking at the first and the second coming as the same coming, and it just wasn't. They were coming for two different reasons. Well, we have a church age going on, and now Jesus is going to come back to receive his church. Secondly, to restore Israel as the promise of Abraham and David. To make things right, that is the judge, justice and judgment. We, you know, we look at making all, everything just now. We want to make everything right now, but this isn't heaven. We make things as right as we can, but things will not be right until they get to, we get to heaven. He says also to destroy evil. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that the devil and all of his angels are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And fifthly, to create an unblemished new heaven and new earth. There is a reason why Jesus is coming back. In fact, there are multiple reasons why he is. But if you believe the Bible, you have to believe in his return. Now, secondly, when is he coming? Well, the Bible tells us in Matthew 24, and I preached through the book of Matthew last year, and in preaching through this last fall, I went through Matthew chapter 24, and you can get that message if you'd like and 
give it more detail. But here's what he says. The concerning, Jesus said that last day, no one knows the hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so here we find that Jesus is saying, I'm not going to tell you when. He says, right now, while I'm on earth, I don't even know. But I wouldn't tell you when anyway, because the long, what happens is, if you know the time, then you're going to be prepared just for that time. But if we don't know the time, we're going to be living, which he's going to get to in just a moment, the way we need to live all the time. What are some of the signs? Again, Matthew 24, wars and unrest. Unrest in the home. The pandemic has proven that, has it not? Increase of divorce going on even right now. We have racial tensions, a Muslim conflict that's still in the world today. Communist com, uh, uh, conflict with China, especially. Right now, everybody's uh, going against China, and they want to be the most powerful nation in the world. They've said, we want to have the most powerful economic system in the world. We want to be most powerful economically, most power, powerful militarily. And so there's conflict and potential conflict there. Earthquakes in 1900s, in the 1900s, 100 earthquakes were recorded. Since 2010, in the last 10 years, 6,500 earthquakes have been reported, and that's not including all the hurricanes, tornadoes, and all the other destruction. Apostasy, false doctrine, which is closest to my heart. We see a falling away of the faith. We see people that have come into the church 20 years ago, then they wanted their children to get the gospel. They wanted their children to get saved and get baptized. Now their children are gone and they're gone. They're done. Then crime, Revelation 9, 21 says they did not repent of their thefts. And even now, as we look at this, we have people say, oh, these signs of the times have been all the time. And they have been, but never to this intensity. Here's the, here's the response of one person from National Public Radio. Andre Korjescu said this, the evaporation of four million people who believe in this stuff would leave the world a better place. Is that true? When you look and in the book of Genesis and Abraham was playing, praying for Lot, and he says, if you can find 10 righteous, would you destroy the city? He says, no, if I can find 10 righteous, I'll save the entire city for those 10 people that were following God. He couldn't even find 10. Couldn't even find them. What about the rapture of the church? When the rapture takes place and the church is gone, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit of God is going to step away from the scene. What's going to happen? Listen, the world cannot live. They can't, the world can't live without God. And so what do we need to do? In light of these times, how should we then live? Notice it says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. What does this mean? It means to live in touch with reality. It doesn't necessarily mean not to be drunk. The Bible talks about that in many places in the Bible. But sobriety is talked about in the Bible. But here we find an illustration. He says, be diligent, be sober-minded. Don't be filled with the things of the world, but be concentrating on the things of God. Be in reality. What is the reality? That Jesus Christ is the way to heaven. That the Bible is the word of God. And Colossians 3.1 tells us, You then being raised from Christ, cease to think, seek the things that are above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Here we find again, in the last days, there's going to be a departure of sound doctrine. And we look at our nation today, and we look at our 
Western civilization. And we find out that we are sometimes really more of a sign of the times than we are the answer to the problem at hand. Second Timothy tells us, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Not understanding the Bible. Do you understand the, the gravity to that? What's happened in the church? Back in the 1970s, we had what we call the Jesus Movement. I was saved during the Jesus Movement and started off with Chuck Smith out in California and spread. It was really, at first, a kind of a hippie movement, if you all remember that term. Uh, a hippie movement, or heard about that term in history. And, and then it just spread throughout the whole church, and so many people were getting saved. In fact, many people were called to the ministry. And we're finding out now, many of them are retiring. They got saved in, the, say, the early 70s, called to the ministry, and, and, and leaving a gap in many cases. But here we find, at the end of the 70s, that materialism has crept back into society in a heavy way. And it cre creeps right back into the church. And now, everybody wants something practical. Everybody wants, how, how do you succeed? Seven steps to success. The seven steps or five steps to having a, a, a great family. The five steps of how to overcome discouragement. The three steps on this and the five steps on that. And over and over and over again, people were preaching on that. And they had, there's two guys that went out to a seminar in California about positive thinking. And they came away applying it to the church, to the evangelical uh, Bible-believing church. Both of them grew mega churches. One of them extremely successful about evangelism and uh, discipleship. The other one, more evangelism, less discipleship. And it's kind of, things have kind of busted a little bit there. But everybody followed them. Everybody went now went to their seminars to find out what to do in order to grow a great church. Pastors from all, everywhere. Well, you preach on the how-tos and the practical stuff. And much of the Bible, as far as many passages in the Bible, were just left out. And we were not doctrinally sound. Now, think about how difficult that is to live the Christian life when you don't know what God wants you to do or how he wants you to live. It's sort of like, uh, you know, I've heard, I've heard from many sources, in fact, that our, the generation that came up with my children did not really learn U.S. history, United States history. That's hurting us today. So well, they learned Florida history. Well, let me tell you about Florida history. I can give you a summation of Florida history just like that. Prior to 1956, nobody lived here. Then air conditioning was invented, and now everybody lives here. That's the history. That's the history of, of, uh, of Florida, basically. And so we don't understand history. We don't know who we are. If we don't understand the Bible, we don't know who we are. And the Scripture teaches us that we need minds that are clear on the Word of God. But secondly, not only minds that are clear, but heads that are bowed. Look in verse 7. The all, end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, he's really pulling off from chapter 3 and verse 7 where he says, Husbands, love your wives because if you don't, your prayers may be hindered. And so he's coming right back to that. And prayers means uh, plural. It's many, 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 many prayers. He says, you don't want your prayers to be hindered. In fact, in the last days, you, you are going to want to pray more. R.A. Torrey wrote this. Great uh, theologian, great 
prayer warrior said this, the great need of the church today and of human society as a whole is a genuine God-sent revival. It is revival or revolution. And if it is revolution, it will plunge human society and civilization into chaos and utter confusion. And you think, hey, I didn't read that on Facebook. I, I didn't see that on social media. I'll tell you why, because R.A. Torrey lived back in the early 1900s, and he wrote that around 1905. But it's ap apropos to us today. Listen, the difference between the early church and the church today. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayers. Now let me tell you about church just as a confession. And I know I'm, I'm saying, uh, throwing some dirty laundry out there, but let me just say, uh, you know, not only was that, that happened in the 80s, but later in the 1980s, a fellow by the, I can't remember his first na name, but his last name was Cho, and he was a pastor of a huge church in South Korea. I'm, you say, how big was it? It was over a million people back then. And so he gave seminars on how to do it. And he gave two things, basically, that were key. Number one, small groups, but not small groups like we do them. They did them in homes, but they go, we'd go in a neighborhood, and they'd pick out someone to have that, that, uh, that uh, prayer meeting and that, and that uh, cell group. But they would do it evangelistically, evangelistically. A couple of families get together and get their whole neighborhood to come. And it just grew that way. Just multiplied, multiplied, multiplied. And he said, oh, by the way, the second thing, far more important than the first one, he said, was this. He said, we would get up as leaders every day, wherever we were, every day at 4 o'clock and pray from 4 to about 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. Well, guess which one the American pastors went after? Yes, you're right, the home cell groups. And birthed from that is what we call our home groups today in churches, but they're for a different reason. We have home groups instead of Sunday school classes sometimes in churches, but it's not, it's not the Cho model. The Cho model was evangelistic. It didn't work in America at all. It just didn't work. And probably the reason it didn't work is that pastors didn't get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and pray for two hours. Just not praying. Prayer will promote personal holiness as well as a dynamic ministry. The Bible says, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will hear their prayer and heal their land. And we're just really not asking. The Bible says in James 4, 2, you don't have because you just don't ask. R.A. Torrey said this, Prayer will reach down to the deepest depths of sin and ruin and take hold of men and women who seem lost beyond possibility or hope of redemption and will lift them up until they are made ready for a place beside the Son of God upon his throne. In a recent, more recent book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, written by Jim Cimbalo just a few years ago, tell, he told the story biographically of how he started the church in Brooklyn, New York. And he said back when he started it, and this was, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, he said Brooklyn was just dilapidated and it was ruined by cocaine. Now, it had a big play in it, but it was already poor and going, you might say, um, economically downhill even before that. And by the time he got there, it was a mess. Homeless people, it's everywhere. Drug addiction, everywhere. 
And he began to work on people and try to lead them to the Lord. But no matter what he did, he just seemed like he said, you know, the more I, the more I did, the less, the less production I had. So he decided to judge his church. He told all the people there, which is still only a handful of maybe 100 people. He said, we're going to have a Tuesday night prayer meeting, and we're going to judge the success or the failure of our church on that prayer meeting. And I've attended that prayer meeting, about a two-hour prayer meeting. And then you could hear, feel heaven coming down. And it's just not, let's just have a two-hour prayer meeting. I know they had to work up to it for a long time, but it was making a difference. And he re well, you can read his books, and he has testimony after testimony after testimony about how the people in Brooklyn were saved, stayed in Brooklyn, made a difference. And you look at that place today, and it is prosperous. It's, it's made a comeback. And you have to wonder how much of that had to do with just that. We look at India. When I went over there in the 19... Uh, 90s, uh, you, you had uh, the typical person making a dollar and a quarter a day. We got in there and then other people came after us because the same people promoted India to us, India um, to us, promoted to other people. People like John Maxwell with Equip went over there with his books, trained leaders everywhere in, in the nation, and now we see the nation coming up out of the ashes. How much? Does Christianity really play in that? How much did it really play in our nation and getting blessed the way we have? We need heads that are bowed. We need hearts that are warm. He says in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That is stretching it out. Anything you have to do. He says, because love covers a multitude of sins. Well, there's no question that you and I will forgive people if we love them. But it goes beyond that. When you and I spread the gospel of Jesus Christ... When we live it, and then we tell people about it, they are going to receive Christ, and their sins are going to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our vision in our church is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you live, work, play, and go, so the sun will not set on the ministry of Cross Life Church. We're about evangelism. We're about reaching people. And when we do that, their sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. Well, then we find... That in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Well, we not only need, we not only need minds that are clear in these last days, heads that are bowed, hearts that are warm, but we need hands that are busy. Everyone gets a talent when you're born, but everyone gets a spiritual gift when you're born again. You have a gift. How are you using that gift for the Lord. The Bible says here to God's varied grace. There's a variable amount of it. He says it's all according to stewardship. You've been given a stewardship. Part of that is your spiritual gifts. We, when we talk about stewardship, sometimes we just talk about money or, or ministry. But you've got a gift that you need to use in service to encourage other Christians, to build up the body of Christ, disciple other people, to put more bricks on the building. You know, the Bible says here in 1 Peter that Jesus is the cornerstone. And then we are the living stones joined to that building. And we need more stones. God wants us to, have, to develop more stones, put more stones on the building to build up the building. And that is evangelism through Jesus Christ. What's he saying to us here? He said, you need to do this. Are you listening to me? You need to do it. Do what God has called you to do until he comes again. 
Somebody asked, well, what would you do if Jesus were to come back tomorrow? Well, I, I'd change everything, I guarantee you. I'd be going to see my kids, my grandkids, go see my dad one more time, my sister. And you would too. Uh, you wouldn't go to work tomorrow if you knew he's coming back tomorrow. But what if you knew he's coming back one year from today? How would that change your life? Let me share with you. It wouldn't change mine really much at all because I'm doing what God has called me to do. I wouldn't go somewhere. I wouldn't retire, go to another, just quit my job and live off retirement for uh, maybe a year, about all I got anyway, for a year, and then, uh, you know, come, and then Jesus comes back. No, I would still be doing what I've been called to do. Now, if you're saying you would change your life, if you knew Jesus was coming back a year from now, then whatever you would change it to, you need to change it now because you're not doing what God would have you to do, if that's the case. There was a young lady, stories told, that was out in a lake. In fact, her father, her younger brother, and she had a, uh, a boat capsized. And the father could swim. The daughter could tread water. The little boy couldn't swim at all. And so he started making it to shore. But before he did, he said, he told his daughter, honey, I want you to tread water until I come back. I will come back, but I want you to tread water until I get back. He took his son to shore, came back to get her. She was still treading water. He took her, he pulled her in, put her up on the shore, totally exhausted. He just told her, he said, honey, I thank God that you just did, you kept treading water. And she made the statement, well, daddy, I just obeyed you. I just did what you told me to do, and I knew you were going to come back to get me. Doing what you're called to do until Jesus returns, because he is returning. Now, let me ask you, is that going to be a, a good thing? Is it going to be like when you go somewhere and you haven't seen somebody for a long time, they hug you like, like my grandkids last week, coming and, or, or last time I saw them at least, come and, and, um, and hug me and hold and just so glad to see me. Are you going to be glad to see Jesus? Or is it going to kind of be an interruption of your life? How do you look at the second coming? And then I want to ask you one last question, and that's this. If Jesus Christ were to come back today, would you be ready? Would you be, as the Bible says, raptured up in the air? Would you be ready to go? And the only way you can get ready is to be of sober mind, and that sober mind is living in reality. And the reality is, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So if you've never been born again, if the Spirit of God's not living in your, in your soul, if right now you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, the way to get ready, the first step in getting ready, the big step in getting ready, is just simply trusting him and inviting him into your heart. And if you've never done that, whether you're here in our auditorium or watching on video, I'm gonna invite you to pray with me right now with heads bowed and eyes closed. That's the question I wanna ask you today. Um, first of all, two questions. Are you looking forward to Jesus coming? And then secondly, if not, then why not? Maybe you've just never received Christ. Maybe you're a little afraid of it, a little bit. The whole second coming idea. Today you can put your fears aside and you can trust him as your Savior and Lord. And I want to invite you right now to pray this prayer with me. 
You can pray silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming the first time to die for me on the cross. I open up my heart to you. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. And I ask you to come into my life, my soul, my heart and make me the person that you want me to be. Give me assurance, God. Give me the, the assurance that you are there with me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.